Hello and welcome back to Bible Beginning to End, where we are reading through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. As always, I will be asking some questions along the way, but I won't be offering any commentary. I will just be asking the questions to get you guys thinking critically about the scriptures and see what God is telling you about them. Right now we are using the New Living Translation if you would like to read along or feel free to just listen or read along with whichever translation you prefer. Last time we were going through the first half of Joshua, which told us the story of Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land and God giving the Israelites a victory over the people who were already living there. The second half that we're going to be reading today, Joshua 13 to 24, is going to take us through Joshua distributing the land and then finally Joshua bidding farewell to Israel. So we're going to start with chapter 13, which starts this new section called Joshua Distributes the Land. And the first part of this section is the land yet to be conquered. And that will start chapter 13. When Joshua was an old man, the Lord said to him, You are growing old, and much land remains to be conquered. This is the territory that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and the Jeshurites and the larger territory of the Canaanites extending from the stream of Shihor on the border of Egypt northward to the boundary of Ekron. It includes the territory of the five Philistine rulers of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Goth, and Ekron. The land of the Avites in the south also remains to be conquered. In the north, the following area has not yet been conquered. All the land of the Canaanites, including Mirah, which belongs to the Sidonians, stretching northward to Aphek on the border of the Amorites. The land of the Gebelites and all of the Lebanon mountain area to the east from Baal God below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath and all the hill country from Lebanon to Misrephoth Mayim, including all the land of the Sidonians. I myself will drive these people out of the land ahead of the Israelites. So be sure to give this land to Israel as a special possession, just as I have commanded you. Include all this territory as Israel's possession when you divide this land among the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think God is going ahead and splitting up the land that they haven't even conquered yet. Why is it that the Israelites have not conquered all these lands yet? How do you think God will drive the people out of these lands ahead of the Israelites as he says in verse 6? And finally, how is Joshua showing faith in God by going ahead and distributing these lands to the Israelite tribes? Okay, so now Joshua is going to start dividing these lands among the tribes of Israel, and he's going to start with the lands east of the Jordan River. So verse 8 starts, Half the tribe of Manasseh, 
and the tribes of Reuben and Gad had already received their grants of land on the east side of the Jordan, for Moses, the servant of the Lord, had previously assigned this land to them. Their territory extended from Arar on the edge of the Arnon Gorge, including the town in the middle of the gorge, to the plain beyond Medeba, as far as Dibon. It also included all the towns of King Sihon of the Amorites, who had reigned in Heshbon and extended as far as the borders of Ammon. It included Gilead, the territory of the kingdoms of Gesher and Maka, all of Mount Hermon, all of Bashan as far as Selica, and all the territory of King Og of Bashan, who had reigned in Ashtaroth and Edrei. King Og was the last of the Raphaites, for Moses had attacked them and driven them out. But the Israelites failed to drive out the people of Gesher and Maka, so they continue to live among the Israelites to this day. Okay, so pause there. Why does it say that Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh had already received their grants of land on the east side of the Jordan? Maybe look back at Numbers 32 to remind you of this story. Verse 14, which starts a new section, an allotment for the tribe of Levi. Moses did not assign any allotment of land to the tribe of Levi. Instead, as the Lord had promised them, their allotment came from the offerings burned on the altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. Okay, so pause there. Why weren't the Levites given any allotment of land? Why do you think that is? And if they were not given any land, then where do the Levitical priests or the people from the Levite tribe live? You might want to check out Deuteronomy 18 to remind you of this answer, which is also another reminder as to why it's good to read the Bible and understand it in its entire context. The next section is the land given to the tribe of Reuben. Verse 15. Moses had assigned the following area to the clans of the tribe of Reuben. Their territory extended from Arar on the edge of the Arnon Gorge, including the town in the middle of the gorge, to the plain beyond Medeba. It included Heshbon and the other towns on the plain Dibon, Bamath Baal, Beth Baal Meon, Jahaz, Kadamoth, Mepheth, Kiriathayim, Sibma, Jareth, Shahar on the hill above the valley, Beth Peor, the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Jeshemoth. The land of Reuben also included all the towns of the plain and the entire kingdom of Sihon. Sihon was the Amorite king who had reigned in Heshbon and was killed by Moses along with the leaders of Midian. Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, princes living in the region who were allied with Sihon. The Israelites had also killed Balaam, son of Beor, who used magic to tell the future. The Jordan River marked the western boundary for the tribe of Reuben. The towns and their surrounding villages in this area were given as a homeland to the clans of the tribe of Reuben. 
The next section is the land given to the tribe of Gad. Moses had assigned the following area to the clans of the tribe of Gad. Their territory included Jazer, all the towns of Gilead, and half of the land of Ammon, as far as the town of Ar, just west of Rabbah. It extended from Heshbon to Ramath Mizpah and Betanim, and from Mahanaim to the territory of Lo Deber. In the valley were Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Sakoth, Zophon, and the rest of the kingdom of King Sihon and Heshbon. The western boundary ran along the Jordan River, extended as far north as the tip of the Sea of Galilee, and then turned eastward. The towns and their surrounding villages in this area were given as homeland to the clans of the tribe of Gad. The next section is the land given to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Moses had assigned the following area to the clans of the half-tribe of Manasseh. Their territory extended from Mahanaim, including all of Bashan, all the former kingdom of King Og, and the sixty towns of Jair in Bashan. It also included half of Gilead and King Og's royal cities of Ashtaroth and Edrei. All this was given to the clans of the descendants of Machir, who was Manasseh's son. These are the allotments Moses had made while he was on the plains of Moab across the Jordan River east of Jericho. But Moses gave no allotment of land to the tribe of Levi, for the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised that he himself would be their allotment. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 14, where we've seen the land east of the Jordan River be divided. Why do you think the land was divided in this way to these specific tribes? We know that there are 12 tribes of Israel, but only a few of the tribes are mentioned in this first section about the east of the Jordan River. Why is that? Why are fewer settling on the east? Was there something that happened earlier in the scriptures that tells us why these tribes are settling east of the Jordan River. We talked a little bit about it earlier, but is there anything else? And as we are reading through this, it might be helpful either before we read through it or after we read through it to see if you can find a map of the divisions of the Promised Land. I'll try and link to one in the description somewhere so that if you want, you can look up and have this visual to kind of see what the divisions looked like after everyone had settled in their specific allotments from the promised land. Okay, here we go with chapter 14, which begins the section of the land divided west of the Jordan River. Verse 1. The remaining tribes of Israel received a land in Canaan as allotted by Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the tribal leaders. These nine and a half tribes received their grants of land by means of sacred lots in accordance with the Lord's command through Moses. Okay, so pause there. What are sacred lots 
Is that something that you've heard before in the scriptures? Do you know what they are? Maybe think about it first. Make a couple of guesses of what you think a sacred lot might be. And then if you're still unsure, that might be something then you could look up in a commentary or do some research on to understand what exactly a sacred lot is. But it's always good to kind of sit with it first and see if you can come up with an idea of what they might be before looking it up and seeing what the experts think. Verse 3. Moses had already given a grant of land to the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River, but he had given the Levites no such allotment. The descendants of Joseph had become two separate tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and the Levites were given no land at all, only towns to live in with surrounding pasture lands for their livestock and all their possessions. So the land was distributed in strict accordance with the Lord's commands to Moses. The next section is Caleb requests his land. A delegation from the tribe of Judah, led by Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, came to Joshua at Gilgal. Caleb said to Joshua, Remember what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, about you and me, when we were at Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land of Canaan. I returned and gave an honest report, but my brothers, who went with me, frightened the people from entering the promised land. For my part, I wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. So that day, Moses solemnly promised me, the land of Canaan, on which you were just walking, will be your grant of land and that of your descendants forever, because you wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. Okay, so pause there. What is Caleb talking about here? Do you remember the story that he's referencing earlier in the scriptures? Maybe go back and check out Numbers 13 and 14 and even Deuteronomy 1 to remind you of what Caleb is talking about. So why do you think God is giving Caleb a special allotment of land? Verse 10. Now as you can see, The Lord has kept me alive and well as he promised for all these 45 years since Moses made this promise, even while Israel wandered in the wilderness. Today, I am 85 years old. I am as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey, and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. So give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. You will remember that as scouts, we found the descendants of Anak living there in great walled towns. But if the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land just as the Lord said. Okay, so pause there. How are we seeing Caleb's faithfulness and trust in the Lord in this section? Why do you think it's important that he mentions that he is still as strong now as he was back then? What do you think he's going to have to face when he goes to the hill country? 
verse 13. So Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave Hebron to him as his portion of land. Hebron still belongs to the descendants of Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, because he wholeheartedly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Previously, Hebron had been called Kiriath Arba. It had been named after Arba, a great hero of the descendants of Anak. And the land had rest from war. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 14. And one of the questions I want you to ask yourself is, with this story that we just read about Caleb, how are we seeing God's faithfulness? What did God promise Caleb and how did he fulfill that promise? And then reflect on your own life. What are the things that God truly promises us, and how do you see him fulfill those promises? Okay, so chapter 15 starts with the land given to the tribe of Judah. Verse 1, the allotment for the clans of the tribe of Judah reached southward to the border of Edom, as far south as the wilderness of Zin. The southern boundary began at the south bay of the Dead Sea, ran south of Scorpion Pass into the wilderness of Zin, and then went south of Kadesh Barnea to Hezron. Then it went up to Adar, where it turned toward Karka. From there it passed to Asman until it finally reached the brook of Egypt, which it followed to the Mediterranean Sea. This was their southern boundary. The eastern boundary extended along the Dead Sea to the mouth of the Jordan River. The northern boundary began at the bay where the Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea, went up from there to Beth Hagla, then proceeded north of Beth Arabah to the stone of Bohan. Bohan was Reuben's son. From that point, it went through the valley of Akar to Deber turning north toward Gilgal, which is across from the slopes of Adamim, on the south side of the valley. From there, the boundary extended to the springs at En Shemesh and on to En Rogel. The boundary then passed through the valley of Ben Hinnom along the southern slopes of the Jebusites, where the city of Jerusalem is located. Then it went west to the top of the mountain above the valley of Hinnom, and on up to the northern end of the valley of Rephaim. From there, the boundary extended from the top of the mountain to the spring at the waters of Nephtoah, and from there to the towns of Mount Ephron. Then it turned toward Bala, that is, Kiriath-Jerim. The boundary circled west of Bala to Mount Seir, passed along to the town of Kesselon on the northern slope of Mount Jerem and went down to Beth Shemesh and on to Timnah. The boundary then proceeded to the slope of the hill north of Ekron, where it turned toward Shikaron and Mount Bala. It passed Javniel and ended at the Mediterranean Sea. The western boundary was the shoreline of the Mediterranean Sea. These are the boundaries for the clans of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so pause there just to give yourself a break because those are a lot of places that we have probably never 
heard of, or we may have, but don't know anything about. So again, just a suggestion, maybe take a look at a map, not if you're driving, but when you get a chance, just to kind of visualize what this all looks like. And as we're reading, it's kind of like when we read through all the genealogies and all the names and all of the different rules and regulations and all of these different long lists of things, it can get kind of difficult to read through and listen to because it might sound a little foreign to us. But underneath it all, underneath it all, what are we learning about God and how he fulfills his promises? Are we seeing God's promises fulfilled here? So keep that in mind as we continue reading. The next section is the land given to Caleb. Verse 13, the Lord commanded Joshua to assign some of Judah's territory to Caleb, son of Jephunneh. So Caleb was given the town of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, which had been named after Anak's ancestor. Caleb drove out the three groups of Anakites, the descendants of Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the sons of Anak. From there, he went to fight against the people living in the town of Deber, formerly called Kiriath-sephir. Caleb said, I will give my daughter, Aksa, in marriage to the one who attacks and captures Kiriath-sephir. Othniel, the son of Caleb's brother, Kenaz, was the one who conquered it. So Aksa became Othniel's wife. When Aksa married Othniel, she urged him to ask his father for a field. As she got down off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What's the matter? She said, Give me another gift. You have already given me land in the Negev. Now please give me springs of water too. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Okay, so pause there, because that's an interesting story that they put in here. Why is this piece about Caleb's daughter included here? And again, we have one of those interesting marriages where Caleb's daughter is marrying his brother's son. What do we think of that? These are tough questions that we sometimes have to sit with, but what is God telling you about that? Does the Bible condone everything that it contains? Or does it include everything that happened accurately, whether God approves of it or not? Why did Caleb's daughter asked him for springs of water. What was the reason for that? And then lastly, how did Caleb have the authority to give the upper and lower springs to his daughter? The next section is the towns allotted to Judah, verse 20. This was the homeland allocated to the clans of the tribe of Judah. The towns of Judah situated along the borders of Edom in the extreme south where Kabzeel, Eder, Jagger, Kinna, Dimana, Adaba, Kadesh, Hazor, Ithnan, Ziph, Telam, Bealoth, 
Hazor Hadata, Kariath Hezron, that is Hazor, Amum, Shema, Malada, Hazar Gada, Heshman, Beth Palet, Hazar Shuol, Beersheba, Biziothea, Balam, Im, Ezem, Eltalad, Kezel, Horma, Ziklag, Madmana, Sansana, Lebiath, Shilam, Ein, and Rimen, twenty-nine towns with their surrounding villages. The following towns situated in the western foothills were also given to Judah. Eshtiel, Zora, Ashna, Zenoa, Inganim, Tapua, Enam, Zarmuth, Adalam, Sako, Azekah, Sha'ariam, Adithayim, Gedorah, and Gedorothayim, 14 towns with their surrounding villages. Also included were Zanan, Hadashah, Migdalgad, Dilian, Mizpah, Jokthil, Lakish, Bazkoth, Eglon, Cabin, Lamim, Kitlish, Gedaroth, Beth Dragon, Naama, and Makadah, sixteen towns with their surrounding villages. Besides these, there were Libna, Ether, Ashan, Ifta, Ashna, Nezib, Kelia, Akzib, and Merishah, nine towns with their surrounding villages. The territory of the tribe of Judah also included Ekron and its surrounding settlements and villages. From Ekron, the boundary extended west and included the towns near Ashdod with their surrounding villages. It also included Ashdod with its surrounding settlements and villages and Gaza with its settlements and villages as far as the brook of Egypt and along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Judah also received the following towns in the hill country, Shamer, Jodder, Sako, Dana, Kiriathsana, that is Deber, Anab, Eshtemah, Anim, Goshen, Holon, and Galo, eleven towns with their surrounding villages. Also included were the towns of Arab, Duma, Eshen, Janim, Beth Tapua, Afaka, Humta, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, and Zior, nine towns with their surrounding villages. Besides these, there were Mayan, Carmel, Ziph, Juta, Jezreel, Joktiam, Zanoa, Kayan, Gibeah, and Timna, ten towns with their surrounding villages. In addition, there were Halul, Bethzer, Geder, Marath, Bethanath, and Eltakon six towns with their surrounding villages. There were also Kiriath Baal, that is Kiriath Jerem, and Rabbah, two towns with their surrounding villages. In the wilderness, there were the towns of Beth Arabah, Midden, Sakaka, Nibshan, the city of Salt, and En Gedai, six towns with their surrounding villages. But the tribe of Judah could not drive out the Jebusites who lived in the city of Jerusalem. 
So the Jebusites lived there among the people of Judah to this day. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 15, because that was more than any other chapter, a lot of town names. So the question to ask is, why was the tribe of Judah given so much land? And then why do you think they were not able to drive out the Jebusites who lived in the city of Jerusalem? Why do you think that the Israelites are having to drive out the land after it's been divided? Why not clear out the land first and then divide it up? Because we see here with the tribe of Judah not being able to drive out the Jebusites, it tells us that they're given this land by God, but it may still be inhabited. So why do you think it was set up that way? Okay, the next chapter is the land given to Ephraim and West Manasseh. The allotment for the descendants of Joseph extended from the Jordan River near Jericho, east of the springs of Jericho, through the wilderness and into the hill country of Bethel. From Bethel, that is Luz, it ran over to Ataroth in the territory of the Archites. Then it descended westward to the territory of the Jophletites, as far as lower Beth Horon, then to Gezer, and over to the Mediterranean Sea. This was the homeland allocated to the families of Joseph's sons Manasseh and Ephraim. The next section is the land given to Ephraim. The following territory was given to the clans of the tribe of Ephraim. The boundary of their homeland began at Adaroth Adar in the east. From there it ran to Upper Beth Horon, then on to the Mediterranean Sea. From McMethath on the north, the boundary curved eastward past Tanath, Shiloh, to the east of Genoa. From Genoa, it turned southward to Adaroth and Narah, touched Jericho, and ended at the Jordan River. From Tapua, the boundary extended westward, following the Kana Ravine to the Mediterranean Sea. This is the homeland allocated to the clans of the tribe of Ephraim. In addition, some towns with their surrounding villages in the territory allocated to the half-tribe of Manasseh were set aside for the tribe of Ephraim. They did not drive the Canaanites out of Gezer, however, so the people of Gezer live as slaves among the people of Ephraim to this day. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 16. We've heard a lot in this section that the tribe of Manasseh, we hear it often referred to as the half-tribe of Manasseh. Why is it called that? Why is it designated in this way of being the half-tribe of Manasseh? And then also in this section, like in a previous section, we read that the tribe was not able to drive the Canaanites out of Gezer. Why do you think that is? Do you think in the New Testament or in the future there will be conflict between these people they were not able to drive out of these territories? 
for example, do you think that there will be conflict with the Canaanites and the Israelites? And then lastly, it talks about how the people of Gezer live as slaves among the people of Ephraim. So again, that might be a tough section to sit with. And I encourage you to think through that and think through it in the light of the question we asked earlier. Does the Bible condone everything it contains? Or does it record the history accurately whether or not they condone the actions that are taking place? Okay, chapter 17 the land given to West Manasseh. The next allotment of land was given to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the descendants of Joseph's older son. Mocker, the firstborn son of Manasseh, was the father of Gilead. Because his descendants were experienced soldiers, the regions of Gilead and Bashan on the east side of the Jordan had already been given to them. So, the allotment on the west side of the Jordan, was for the remaining families within the clans of the tribe of Manasseh, Abizer, Helek, Azrael, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemidah. These clans represent the male descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph. However, Zelophehad, a descendant of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, he had only daughters, whose names were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza. These women came to Eliezer the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the Israelite leaders, and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us a grant of land along with the men of our tribe. So Joshua gave them a grant of land along with their uncles, as the Lord had commanded. As a result, Manasseh's total allocation came to ten parcels of land in addition to the land of Gilead and Bashan across the Jordan River. Because the female descendants of Manasseh received a grant of land along with the male descendants, the land of Gilead was given to the rest of the male descendants of Manasseh. The boundary of the tribe of Manasseh extended from the border of Asher to Michmetheth near Shechem. Then the boundary went south from McMethith to the settlement near the spring of Tapua. The land surrounding Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but the town of Tapua itself on the border of Manasseh's territory belonged to the tribe of Ephraim. From the spring of Tapua, the boundary of Manasseh followed the Kana Ravine to the Mediterranean Sea. Several towns south of the ravine were inside Manasseh's territory, but they actually belonged to the tribe of Ephraim. In general, however, the land south of the ravine belonged to Ephraim, and the land north of the ravine belonged to Manasseh. Manasseh's boundary ran along the northern side of the ravine and ended at the Mediterranean Sea. North of Manasseh was the territory of Asher, and to the east was the territory of Issachar. The following towns within the territory of Issachar and Asher, however, were given to Manasseh, Bethshan, Iblium, Dor, that is Nephoth Dor, Endor, Tanakh, and Megiddo, each with their surrounding settlements. 
But the descendants of Manasseh were unable to occupy these towns because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. Later, however, when the Israelites became strong enough, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves, but they did not drive them out of the land. The descendants of Joseph came to Joshua and asked, Why have you given us only one portion of land as our homeland when the Lord has blessed us with so many people? Joshua replied, If there are so many of you, and if the hill country of Ephraim is not large enough for you, clear out land for yourselves in the forest where the Perizzites and Rephaites live. The descendants of Joseph responded, It's true that the hill country is not large enough for us, but all the Canaanites in the lowlands have iron chariots, both those in Bethshan and its surrounding settlements, and those in the valley of Jezreel. They're too strong for us. Then Joshua said to the tribes of Ephron and Manasseh, the descendants of Joseph, Since you are so large and strong, you will be given more than one portion. The forests of the hill country will be yours as well. Clear as much of the land as you wish and take possession of its farthest corners, and you will drive out the Canaanites from the valleys too, even though they are strong and have iron chariots." Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 17. Why did the descendants of Joseph come to Joshua and ask for more land? And then why were they worried they would not be able to claim the land where the Canaanites lived? And then why do you think Joshua was so certain that they would be able to drive out the Canaanites from the valleys, even though they have iron chariots and were strong? Okay, now we can start chapter 18, which starts a section called the allotments for the remaining seven tribes. Verse 1 Now that the land was under Israelite control, the entire community of Israel gathered at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle. But there remained seven tribes who had not yet been allotted their grants of land. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Israel gathered at this point and set up the tabernacle? What is the significance of the tabernacle? Do you remember what it is, what it looks like, what purpose it served for the Israelite community, how important it was? What do you think setting up the tabernacle meant for the Israelite community? And then why do you think they set up the tabernacle in Shiloh? Verse 3, Then Joshua asked them, How long are you going to wait before taking possession of the remaining land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you? Select three men from each tribe, and I will send them out to explore the land and map it out. They will then return to me with a written report of their proposed divisions of their new homeland. Let them divide the land into seven sections, excluding Judah's territory in the south and Joseph's territory in the north, And when you record the seven divisions of the land and bring them to me, I will cast sacred lots in the presence of the Lord our God to assign land to each tribe. The Levites, however, will not receive any allotment of land. Their role as priests of the Lord is their allotment. 
then the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh won't receive any more land, for they have already received their grant of land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them on the east side of the Jordan River. As the men started on their way to map out the land, Joshua commanded them, Go and explore the land and write a description of it, then return to me and I will assign the land to the tribes by casting sacred lots here in the presence of the Lord at Shiloh. The men did as they were told and mapped the entire territory into seven sections, listing the towns in each section. They made a written record and then returned to Joshua in the camp at Shiloh. And there at Shiloh, Joshua cast sacred lots in the presence of the Lord to determine which tribe should have each section. Okay, so pause there. And I just want you to reflect on the people, the men who are going out to explore this land and map it out and divide it up. Do you think this was a daunting task? Do you think they might have been scared or intimidated going out into a land that none of them had been in before? Or do you think they were courageous and ready to go and excited to explore this new land? The next section is the land given to Benjamin, verse 11. The first allotment of land went to the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. It lay between the territory assigned to the tribes of Judah and Joseph. The northern boundary of Benjamin's land began at the Jordan River, went north of the slope of Jericho, then went through the hill country and the wilderness of Beth-Avon. From there, the boundary went south to Luz, that is Bethel, and proceeded down to Otteroth Otter on the hill that lies south of the lower Beth Horon. The boundary then made a turn and swung south along the western edge of the hill facing Beth Horon, ending at the village of Kiriath Baal, that is Kiriath Jerem, a town belonging to the tribe of Judah. This was the western boundary. The southern boundary began at the outskirts of Kiriath-Jerim. From that western point, it ran to the spring at the waters of Nephtoah and down to the base of the mountain beside the valley of Ben-Hinnom, at the northern end of the valley of Rephim. From there, it went down the valley of Hinnom, crossing south of the slope where the Jebusites lived, and continued down to En-Rogel. From Enrogel, the boundary proceeded in a northerly direction and came to En Shemesh and on to Geliloth, which is across from the slopes of Adamim. Then it went down to the stone of Bohan. Bohan was Reuben's son. From there, it passed along the north side of the slope overlooking the Jordan Valley. The border then went down into the valley, ran past the north slope of Beth Hagla, and ended at the north bay of the Dead Sea, which is the southern end of the Jordan River. This was the southern boundary. The eastern boundary was the Jordan River. These were the boundaries of the homeland allocated to the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. The next section is the towns given to Benjamin. These were the towns given to the clans of the tribe of Benjamin, Jericho, Beth Hagla, Emek Kezes, Beth Araba, Zimmerim, Bethel, 
Avim, Para, Afra, Kefir, Amoni, Afni, and Geba, twelve towns with their surrounding villages. Also, Gibeon, Rama, Birath, Mizpah, Kephirah, Maza, Rechem, Erpil, Taralah, Zela, Hyleph, the Jebusite town, that is, Jerusalem, Gibeah, and Kiriath-Jerim, fourteen towns with their surrounding villages. This was the homeland allocated to the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 18 and just take a moment to take a breath. This is halfway through our reading today, and this reading is a lot. So let's just take, this is a good place where if you want to pause and come back to the episode at another time, this might be a good place to stop and take a break and come back to it. And before we start with chapter 19, some of the questions you might be asking yourself are, why is it important for me to read through all of these towns that I've never heard of and all of this information and these words I don't know? It seems so complicated. Why is this important? And so I want you to ask yourself, why is it important that we see how the land was allocated to each tribe? Because we're not done. We've got quite a few more allocations to go. So start thinking about why is it important to know this information? Why is this here? Okay, and as we start chapter 19, I may not stop much during this chapter because it is a lot of allotments to the remaining tribes, but there are a lot shorter than the previous allotments. So one of the questions that you can be thinking about as we're reading this chapter is, why were these tribes given less land, or why were these allotments less complicated than the previous clans? You might also ask, why do these specific allotments show up in this order? Why did we start with one specific tribe, but we're going to end with another tribe? Why were they given to us in this order? Chapter 19 starts with the land given to Simeon. The second allotment of land went to the clans of the tribe of Simeon. Their homeland was surrounded by Judah's territory. Simeon's homeland included Beersheba, Sheba, Moladah, Hazar Shuol, Bala, Ezem, Etalad, Bethel, Horma, Ziklag, Beth Markaboth, Hazar Susa, Beth Lebeoth, and Sharuhen, thirteen towns with their surrounding villages. It also included Ain, Rimen, Ether, and Ashen, four towns with their villages, including all the surrounding villages as far south as Balath Bear also known as Rama of the Negev. This was the homeland allocated to the clans of the tribe of Simeon. Their allocation of land came from part of what had been given to Judah because Judah's territory was too large for them, so the tribe of Simeon received an allocation within the territory of Judah. The next section is the land given to Zebulun. The third allotment of land went to the clans of the tribe of Zebulun. The boundary of Zebulun's homeland started at Sarid. From there, it went west, going past Marla, 
touching Dabasheth and proceeding to the brook east of Jokneam. In the other direction, the boundary went east from Saurid to the border of Kisleth Tabor, and from there to Dabareth and up to Jaffia. Then it continued east to Goth Hefer, Eth Kazan, and Rimnan, and turned toward Nia. The northern boundary of Zebulun passed Hanathon and ended at the valley of Iftael. The towns in these areas included Katoth, Nahalal, Shimron, Edelah, and Bethlehem, twelve towns with their surrounding villages. The homeland allocated to the clans of the tribe of Zebulun included these towns and their surrounding villages. The next section is the land given to Issachar. The fourth allotment of land went to the clans of the tribe of Issachar. Its boundaries included the following towns, Jezreel, Kozaloth, Shunem, Hafariam, Shion, Anaharath, Rabbath, Kishion, Ebiz, Remeth, on Ganem, on Hada, and Beth Pazes. The boundary also touched Tabor, Shahazamah, and Beth Shemesh, ending at the Jordan River, sixteen towns with their surrounding villages. The homeland allocated to the clans of the tribe of Issachar included these towns and their surrounding villages. The next section is the land given to Asher. The fifth allotment of land went to the clans of the tribe of Asher. Its boundaries included these towns, Helka, Hali, Betan, Akshaf, Alamalek, Ahmed, and Mishal. The boundary on the west touched Carmel and Shihor Libneth. Then it turned east toward Beth Dagon and ran as far as Zebulun in the valley of Iftael going north to Beth Amic and Nile. It then continued north to Kabul, Abdon, Rehob, Haman, Kana, and as far as Greater Sidon. Then the boundary turned toward Ramah and the fortress of Tyre, where it turned toward Hosa and came to the Mediterranean Sea. The territory also included Mehebel, Oxib, Uma, Afik, and Rehob, 22 towns with their surrounding villages. The homeland allocated to the clans of the tribe of Asher included these towns and their surrounding villages. Okay, so pause there just to take a breath, just to take a breath because we've only got two more tribes to go, two more tribes in Joshua. So just take a breath, just Don't worry too much about all these names and all these different places. Feel free to take a look at a map when you get a chance just to kind of see what all this looks like. But we've got two more to go. So just take a short break here. Okay, the next section is the land given to Naphtali. The sixth allotment of land went to the clans of the tribe of Naphtali. Its boundaries ran from Heleth, from the oak at Za'ananim, and extended across Adami Nekeb, Jabneel, and as far as Lakam, ending at the Jordan River. The western boundary ran past Osnath Tabor, then to Hukuk, and touched the border of Zebulun in the south. The border of Asher, 
on the west and the Jordan River on the east. The fortified towns included in this territory were Zidim, Zer, Hamath, Rocketh, Kinnereth, Adama, Rama, Hazor, Kadesh, Edrei, Anhazor, Yiron, Migdol-el, Horam, Beth-Anoth, and Beth-Shemesh, 19 towns with their surrounding villages. The homeland allocated to the clans of the tribe of Naphtali included these towns and their surrounding villages. The land given to Dan. The seventh allotment of land went to the clans of the tribe of Dan. The land allocated as their homeland included the following towns, Zorah, Eshtael, Urshemesh, Shaalabin, Ijalon, Ithla, Elon, Timna, Ekron, Eltica, Gibbethon, Baalath, Jehud, Benebarak, Gathrimon, Mejarkin, Rakin, and the territory across from Joppa. But the tribe of Dan had trouble taking possession of their land, so they attacked the town of Laish. They captured it, slaughtered its people, and settled there. They renamed the town Dan after their ancestor. The homeland allocated to the clans of the tribe of Dan included these towns and their surrounding villages. Okay, so pause there and ask yourself this question. Why do you think the tribe of Dan had trouble taking possession of their land when the other tribes we read about during this section didn't have any trouble taking possession of their land? And why do you think God wanted the tribes to take possession, why didn't God just do all of the work for them and take possession of all the land before he allocated it all? The next section is the land given to Joshua. After all the land was divided among the tribes, the Israelites gave a piece of land to Joshua as his allocation, for the Lord said he could have any town he wanted. He chose Timnath Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim. He rebuilt the town and lived there. These are the territories that Eliezer the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the tribal leaders allocated as grants of land to the tribes of Israel by casting sacred lots in the presence of the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle at Shiloh. So the division of the land was complete. So pause there and ask this question, why was Joshua singled out and given his own allotment of land? Was Joshua a part of a tribe? And if so, why didn't he just get an allotment of land with his tribe? Okay, the next chapter is Joshua 20, which is talking about the cities of refuge. Before we start this chapter, you may want to ask yourself, have you heard this term, City of Refuge, before? Do you remember what a City of Refuge is and what its purpose is and why they have to set these cities up? Verse 1. The Lord said to Joshua, Now tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed Moses. Anyone who kills another person accidentally and unintentionally can run to one of these cities. They will be places of refuge 
from relatives seeking revenge for the person who was killed. Upon reaching one of these cities, the one who caused the death will appear before the elders at the city gate and present his case. They must allow him to enter the city and give him a place to live among them. If the relatives of the victim come to avenge the killing, the leaders must not release the slayer to them, for he killed the other person unintentionally and without previous hostility. But the slayer must stay in that city and be tried by the local assembly, which will render a judgment. And he must continue to live in that city until the death of the high priest who was in office at the time of the accident. After that, he is free to return to his own home in the town from which he fled. Okay, so pause there. Now that you've been reminded what these cities of refuge are, what do you think about this system? What does it show us about God's sense of justice? Verse 7. The following cities were designated as cities of refuge. Kadesh of Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. On the east side of the Jordan River, across from Jericho, the following cities were designated. Bezer in the wilderness plain of the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead in the territory of the tribe of Gad, and Galen in Bashan in the land of the tribe of Manasseh. These cities were set apart for all the Israelites as well as foreigners living among them. Anyone who accidentally killed another person could take refuge in one of these cities. In this way, they could escape being killed in revenge prior to standing trial before the local assembly. The next chapter is Joshua 21, the towns given to the Levites. Then the leaders of the tribe of Levi came to consult with Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the leaders of the other tribes of Israel. They came to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us towns to live in and pasture lands for our livestock. So, by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands out of their own grants of land. Okay, so pause there, and we're talking about the Levitical priests. So, the question is, why weren't they given a division of land earlier when all the lands were divided? We've kind of touched on this question before, but let's remind ourselves why they weren't included in that original distribution of land. And then why are the tribes giving the Levitical priests lands within their own grants of land? And then lastly, why do the Levitical priests need pasture land for livestock? Verse 4. The descendants of Aaron who were members of the Kohathite clan within the tribe of Levi, were allotted 13 towns that were originally assigned to the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. The other families of the Kohathite clan were allotted 10 towns from the tribes of Ephraim, Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. 
the clan of Gershon was allotted 13 towns from the tribes of Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and Bashan. The clan of Merari was allotted 12 towns from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. So the Israelites obeyed the Lord's command to Moses and assigned these towns and pasture lands to the Levites by casting sacred lots. The Israelites gave the following towns from the tribes of Judah and Simeon to the descendants of Aaron who were members of the Kohathite clan within the tribe of Levi, since the sacred lot fell to them first. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah along with its surrounding pasture lands, Arba was an ancestor of Anak, but the open fields beyond the town and the surrounding villages were given to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, as his possession. The following towns with their pasture lands were given to the descendants of Aaron, the priest. Hebron, a city of refuge for those who accidentally killed someone. Libna, Jodder, Eshtimoah, Holon, Deber, Ein, Jutta, and Beth Shemesh, nine towns from these two tribes. From the tribe of Benjamin, the priests were given the following towns with their pasture lands, Gibeon, Geba, Anathoth, and Almon, four towns. So in all, 13 towns with their pasture lands were given to the priests, the descendants of Aaron. The rest of the Kohathite clan from the tribe of Levi was allotted the following towns and pasture lands from the tribe of Ephraim. Shechem, in the hill country of Ephraim, a city of refuge for those who accidentally killed someone, Gezer, Kibzaim, and Beth Horon, four towns. The following towns and pasture lands were allotted to the priests from the tribe of Dan, Alteca, Gibbethon, Aijalon, and Gothrimon, four towns. The half-tribe of Manasseh allotted the following towns with their pasture lands to the priests, to Anak and Gothrimon, two towns. So in all, ten towns with their pasture lands were given to the rest of the Kohathite clan. The descendants of Gershon, another clan within the tribe of Levi, received the following towns with their pasture lands from the half-tribe of Manasseh, Galen, Imbashan, a city of refuge for those who accidentally killed someone, and Bishtura, two towns. From the tribe of Issachar, they received the following towns with their pasture lands, Kishion, Dabaroth, Jarmuth, and Anganim, four towns. From the tribe of Asher, they received the following towns with their pasture lands, Mishal, Obdan, Helkath, and Rehob, four towns. From the tribe of Naphtali, they received the following towns with their pasture lands, Kadesh in Galilee, a city of refuge for those who accidentally killed someone, Hamathador, and Carton, three towns. So in all, thirteen towns with their pasture lands were allotted to the clan of Gershon. The rest of the Levites, the Merari clan, were given the following towns with their pasture lands from the tribe of Zebulun, Jokniam, Karta, Dimna, and Nahalal, four towns. From the tribe of Reuben, they received the following towns with their pasture lands, Bezer, Jahaz, Kadimoth, and Mephith, four towns. From the tribe of Gad, they received the following towns with their pasture lands, Ramath and Gilead, 
a city of refuge for those who accidentally killed someone. Mahanaim, Heshbon, and Jazer, four towns. So in all, twelve towns were allotted to the clan of Merari. The total number of towns and pasture lands within Israelite territory given to the Levites came to forty-eight. Every one of these towns had pasture lands surrounding it. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had solemnly promised their ancestors. None of their enemies could stand against them, for the Lord helped them conquer all their enemies. Not a single one of all the good promises the Lord had given to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Everything he had spoken came true. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 21. And before we get into the meat of that last section, one question to ask is why were the Levitical priests given all of the towns that were cities of refuge for those who had accidentally killed someone? Why do you think those went to the Levitical priests? And then now that we've come to the end of the division of all of these lands and all the Israelites have the lands that were promised to them, what is that showing us about God? It says the Lord gave to Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. What is that telling us about God? Just reflect on how long it's been since God made those promises to Abraham all those many years and generations ago. And then what are we seeing fulfilled right here in Joshua? How significant is that? And then sit with that last phrase. Everything the Lord had spoken came true. How do you react to that phrase? What is it making you feel? And what is it teaching you about God? Okay, so now we're going to transition into the final section of Joshua, which is Joshua bids farewell to Israel. And this section is going to start with chapter 22 called The Eastern Tribes Return to Their Homes. Joshua 22 verse 1. Then Joshua called together the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. He told them, You have done as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you have obeyed every order I have given you. During all this time, you have not deserted the other tribes. You have been careful to obey the commands of the Lord your God right up to the present day. And now the Lord your God has given the other tribes rest as he promised them. So go back home to the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you as your possession on the east side of the Jordan River. But... Be very careful to obey all the commands and the instructions that Moses gave to you. Love the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways. Obey his commands. Hold firmly to him and serve him with all your heart and all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went home. 
Okay, so pause there and reflect on Joshua's summary of the Israelites' spiritual commitment to God and what it should look like. If you've read the New Testament, do you hear Jesus reiterate something similar to what Joshua says in verse 5 when he says to serve God with all your heart and all your soul? Maybe take a look at Mark 12, specifically verses 30 to 31. Do you think that the Israelites will follow this spiritual commitment and remember their covenant with God? Or do you think there will be more times like we've seen in the past where they fall away from God? Verse 7. Moses had given the land of Bashan east of the Jordan River to the half-tribe of Manasseh. The other half of the tribe was given land west of the Jordan. As Joshua sent them away and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your homes with the great wealth you have taken from your enemies, the vast herds of livestock, the silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and the large supply of clothing. Share the plunder with your relatives. So the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the rest of Israel at Shiloh in the land of Canaan. They started their journey back to their own land of Gilead, the territory that belonged to them according to the Lord's command through Moses. The next section is the eastern tribes build an altar. But while they were still in Canaan, and when they came to a place called Geloloth near the Jordan River, the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh stopped to build a large and imposing altar. The rest of Israel heard that the people of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had built an altar at Geloloth at the edge of the land of Canaan, on the west side of the Jordan River. So the whole community of Israel gathered at Shiloh and prepared to go to war against them. Okay, so pause there and ask yourself this question. What was the big deal about the altar these tribes were building on the west side of the Jordan River. Why are the rest of the Israelites about to start a civil war over it? Do you think it was an altar to a false god, or was it an altar to God that was unsanctioned? What about this altar do you think is causing such a strong reaction? You might take a look at Deuteronomy 12, 1-14 to kind of remind you about the rules and regulations surrounding altars. And then what do you think is going to happen as a result of this? Verse 13, first, however, they sent a delegation led by Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to talk with the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. In this delegation were ten leaders of Israel, one from each of the ten tribes and each the head of his family within the clans of Israel. When they arrived in the land of Gilead, they said to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, The whole community of the Lord demands to know why you are betraying the God of Israel. How could you turn away from the Lord and build an altar for yourselves in rebellion against him? Was our sin at Peor not enough? 
To this day, we are not fully cleansed of it, even after the plague that struck the entire community of the Lord. And yet, today, you are turning away from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, He will be angry with all of us tomorrow. If you need the altar because the land you possess is defiled, then join us in the Lord's land where the tabernacle of the Lord is situated and share our land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar other than the one true altar of the Lord our God. Didn't divine anger fall on the entire community of Israel when Achan, a member of the clan of Zerah, sinned by stealing the things set apart for the Lord? He was not the only one who died because of his sin. Okay, so pause there. Does that make this situation any clearer? What is their sin? What have they done wrong by building this altar? Why are the Israelites so concerned about this? Do you remember the stories he's referencing at Peor and then the story about Achan when his whole family died for his sin? What might happen to the Israelites because of what these tribes have done by building this altar? Verse 21, Then the people of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered the heads of the clan of Israel, The Lord, the Mighty One, is God. The Lord, the Mighty One, is God. He knows the truth, and may Israel know it too. We have not built the altar in treacherous rebellion against the Lord. If we have done so, do not spare our lives this day. If we have built an altar for ourselves to turn away from the Lord or to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings, may the Lord himself punish us. The truth is, we have built this altar because we fear that in the future your descendants will say to ours, what right do you have to worship the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has placed the Jordan River as a barrier between our people and you people of Reuben and Gad. You have no claim to the Lord. So your descendants may prevent our descendants from worshiping the Lord. So we decided to build the altar, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, but as a memorial. It will remind our descendants and your descendants that we too have the right to worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and peace offerings. Then your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no claim to the Lord. If they say this, our descendants can reply, look at this copy of the Lord's altar that our ancestors made. It is not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. It is a reminder of the relationship both of us have with the Lord. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord or turn away from him by building our own altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifices. Only the altar of the Lord our God that stands in front of the tabernacle may be used for that purpose. Okay, so pause there as you've heard the response from Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. What do you think about their reasoning for building this altar? Do you think it's a just reason, or do you think they have still made the wrong decision and sinned against God? How do you think Phineas and the other leaders are going to react to this response and explanation 
from Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Verse 30. When Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of Israel, heard this from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they were satisfied. Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, replied to them, Today we know the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord as we thought. Instead, you have rescued Israel from being destroyed by the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the other leaders left the tribes of Reuben and Gad and Gilead, and returned to the land of Canaan to tell the Israelites what had happened. And all the Israelites were satisfied and praised God and spoke no more of war against Reuben and Gad. The people of Reuben and Gad named the altar Witness, for they said it is a witness between us and them that the Lord is our God too. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 22. Were you surprised by the leader's responses to Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh's explanation there. Why were they justified in building that altar? And why did they say that instead you have rescued Israel from being destroyed by the hand of God? Why did them building that altar rescue them? And then reflect on how they came to a resolution in this situation. Initially, everybody wanted to go to war, but what did they do instead, and how did they resolve the situation? And then also reflect on what they called the monument, the altar to God. They called it witness. What is the significance of that, and what does that word mean, and how is it used in this context for Israel? Okay, so our next section is going to be Joshua 23, which is titled Joshua's Final Words to Israel. So before we even read this chapter, I want you guys to think about Joshua's life. What role has he played in the Israelite community? How have we seen his faith in God displayed? What was he like as a leader within the Israelite community? How do you think the Israelites will be impacted by his death? Okay, Joshua 23, verse 1. The years passed, and the Lord had given the people of Israel rest from all their enemies. Joshua, who was now very old, called together all the elders, leaders, judges, and officers of Israel. He said to them, I am now a very old man. You have seen everything the Lord your God has done for you during my lifetime. The Lord your God has fought for you against your enemies. I have allotted to you as your homeland all the land of the nations yet unconquered, as well as the land of those we have already conquered, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. This land will be yours, for the Lord your God will himself 
drive out all the people living there now. You will take possession of their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Okay, so pause there and ask yourself this question. Who is Joshua attributing all the Israelites' blessings to? Himself or to God? Verse 6. So be very careful to follow everything Moses wrote in the book of instruction. Do not deviate from it, turning either to the right or to the left. Make sure you do not associate with the other people still remaining in the land. Do not even mention the names of their gods, much less swear by them or serve them or worship them. Rather, cling tightly to the Lord your God as you have done until now. Okay, so pause there and ask this question. Why do you think Joshua gave this reminder and these instructions to the people of Israel? Why do you think they're not supposed to associate with other people still remaining in the land or even mention the names of their gods? Why do you think it was that strict for the people of Israel? And then with the coming of Jesus in the New Testament, how has this changed for us? In what ways should we be reaching out to people around us who are not Christians or who do not know God or Jesus? And why do you think that has changed? Verse 9, For the Lord has driven out great and powerful nations for you, and no one has yet been able to defeat you. Each one of you will put to flight a thousand of the enemy, for the Lord your God fights for you, just as he has promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away from him and cling to the customs of the survivors of these nations, remaining among you, and if you intermarry with them, then know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive them out of your land. Instead, they will be a snare and a trap to you, a whip for your backs and thorny brambles in your eyes, and you will vanish from this good land the Lord your God has given you. Okay, so pause there and ask yourself, these questions. First, who is Joshua talking about here when he is warning them not to marry certain people? Do you think that there is room in the Israelite community for foreigners who were already living in Canaan to enter into the Israelite community if they decide to follow God? Were there conversions during this time? Were there people coming to the realization that there is only one true God? Remember Rahab's story. How is she a depiction of someone coming to the realization that there is only one true God? So here in this section... Who is Joshua talking about when he's warning them not to 
marry the people already living in these lands and worshiping multiple gods. Is he saying don't marry any of them? Or is he saying don't marry people who worship other gods? Is there an allowance here for foreigners outside of the Israelite community who convert and declare the God of Israel as their one true God to possibly enter into marriage within the Israelite community? This is something we'll talk a little bit more about when we read the book of Ruth, which is coming up soon, but sometimes these regulations are a little difficult to read because at first reading, it might sound like God is saying there's no room for people outside of the Israelite community to believe in him, to trust in him, and to enter into the Israelite community. And so what I want you guys to think about is, is that true? Or is there room for conversion? Is there room for these foreigners to turn away from their false gods and enter into unity with the one true God. Verse 14, Soon I will die, going the way of everything on earth. Deep in your hearts you know that every promise of the Lord your God has come true. Not a single one has failed. But as surely as the Lord your God has given you the good things he promised, he will also bring disaster on you if you disobey him. He will completely destroy you from this good land he has given you. If you break the covenant of the Lord your God by worshiping and serving other gods, his anger will burn against you and you will quickly vanish from the good land He has given you. Okay, so pause there at the end of 23. What is the final warning Joshua is giving to the Israelite community? What does he remind them of? What will happen to the Israelites if they turn away from God and start worshiping or following false gods? Do you see in this section the need for a savior? Do you see in this section why the people of God will need Jesus? And also, can you connect this warning to us today? What will happen to God's people now if they turn away from him? There's always a way back. But if we continually decide to deny God and to turn away from him, what will happen? Okay, so the final chapter we're going to read in the book of Joshua is Joshua 24. And that is called The Lord's Covenant Renewed. So let's start with chapter 24, verse 1. Then Joshua summoned all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, including their elders, leaders, judges, and officers. So they came and presented themselves to God. Joshua said to the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, 
your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River, and they worshipped other gods. But I took your ancestor Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him into the land of Canaan. I gave him many descendants through his son Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir, while Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I brought terrible plagues on Egypt, and afterward I brought you out as free people. But when your ancestors arrived at the Red Sea, the Egyptians chased after you with chariots and charioteers. When your ancestors cried out to the Lord, I put darkness between you and the Egyptians. I brought the sea crashing down on the Egyptians, drowning them. With your very own eyes, you saw what I did. Then you lived in the wilderness for many years. Finally, I brought you into the land of the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I destroyed them before you. I gave you victory over them, and you took possession of their land. Then Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, started a war against Israel. He summoned Balaam, son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to him. Instead, I made Balaam bless you. And so I rescued you from Balak. When you crossed the Jordan River and came to Jericho, the men of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I gave you victory over them, and I sent terror ahead of you to drive out the two kings of the Amorites. It was not your sword or bows that brought you victory. I gave you land you had not worked on, and I gave you towns you did not build, the towns where you are now living. I gave you vineyards and olive groves for food, though you did not plant them. Okay, so pause there and reflect on that declaration that God just made. Why is God reminding the Israelites of this history? Do you remember reading or hearing these stories throughout Scripture that God is talking about right now? Have we read about all of these instances, all of these historical events? And when we look back on all of these events, who is the one who brought victory? Verse 14. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live now? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Okay, so pause there because right at the end 
is a very famous verse. Have you heard it before? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Does knowing the context of this verse change the way you think about it, change the way you hear that verse? What does it bring to mind when you hear these words? And who is speaking here? Who is giving this speech? How is Joshua showing his leadership? How is he living by example to the people of Israel? Do you think it will be difficult for the Israelites to stay true to God? Will they be tempted to follow these other gods of the people who lived in this land before them, of even their ancestors before their ancestors knew of the one true God? Verse 16, the people replied, We would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. For the Lord our God is the one who rescued us and our ancestors from slavery in the land of Egypt. He performed mighty miracles before our very eyes. As we traveled through the wilderness among our enemies, he preserved us. It was the Lord who drove out the Amorites and the other nations living here in the land. So we too will serve the Lord, for he alone is our God. Then Joshua warned the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy and jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you abandon the Lord and serve other gods, he will turn against you and destroy you, even though he has been so good to you. But the people answered Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. You are a witness to your own decision, Joshua said. You have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, they replied. We are witnesses to what we have said. All right then, Joshua said. Destroy the idols among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God. We will obey him alone. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day at Shechem, committing them to follow the decrees and regulations of the Lord. Joshua recorded these things in the book of God's instructions. As a reminder of their agreement, he took a huge stone and rolled it beneath the terebinth tree beside the tabernacle of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, This stone has heard everything the Lord said to us. It will be a witness to testify against you if you go back on your word to God. Then Joshua sent all the people away to their homelands. Okay, so pause there. We are seeing God's covenant renewed here with Israel. So my question is, what is a covenant? And if they are renewing a covenant here, what was the original covenant that was made? Do you think that Israel will stay true to this covenant, or do you think that they will fall away and start worshiping other gods? Do you think the whole community will worship other gods? Do you think they will all stay faithful? Do you think some will stray 
and some will stay faithful. What do you think is going to happen among the community of Israel? And then how seriously should they be taking this covenant? How serious is a covenant vow? Is it a strong bond? Is it something to be entered into lightly or something to be entered into with deep understanding and reverence for God? Okay, the last section in Joshua is leaders buried in the promised land. Verse 29. After this, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land he had been allocated at Timnah-Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. The people of Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, those who had personally experienced all that the Lord had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought along with them when they left Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the plot of land Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor for a hundred pieces of silver. This land was located in the territory allotted to the descendants of Joseph. Eliezer, son of Aaron, also died. He was buried in the hill country of Ephraim, in the town of Gibeah, which had been given to his son Phinehas. Okay, so pause there at the end of Joshua and just take a moment to reflect on these leaders who have died here in this section and think on what they did for the community of Israel and how God used them to lead and guide his people. And then we also see Joseph's bones being buried at Shechem and it says that it's a plot of land that Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor for a hundred pieces of silver. Do you remember that story? And if so, how are we seeing things come full circle here? And then I want you to reflect on Joshua, the leader of Joshua, the man for whom this book of the Bible is named. Think about all the things that he did throughout this book. How did God use Joshua to fulfill his promises to the Israelites? And lastly, reflect on God's original promise and covenant with Abraham. And what do we see at the end of this book? The Israelites are settled in the promised land. They are settled in the land that God promised to give to their ancestors, Abraham, and all of his descendants. We are seeing them in that land now. So just think on that. Think on how we are seeing God fulfill his promises and reflect on how God might be or might have or might will fulfill promises he makes to us now. Okay, so that is the end of Joshua, and I almost cannot believe that we've made it through another book. We really are getting there a little bit at a time. And next time we will start Judges. And that is a different book. It is a book that is going to explore what happens when the people of Israel disobey God's covenant, when they stray 
from God. So we will start that next time. As always, thank you so, so much for listening. I love hearing from you. I love getting your emails. And I really hope that these questions, these critical thinking questions are helping you understand the Bible more clearly and to interact with God and to just spend time in his word. So thank you for listening. Please reach out if you would like to. I always enjoy getting your emails and messages and I will talk to you in the next one.